Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Thanks all to everybody for joining us. I'm Jamil Jaffer, the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Anton Scalia Law School. NSI was founded about three years ago with the idea of bringing a robust conversation about American national security uh, to a both an academic, a policymaking, student, and public audience. And part of that effort uh, was to focus on a couple of specific issues for the year 2020, 2021. And so this year we've launched two major initiatives, our Countering China's Rise initiative and our Technology and Innovation and National Security Initiative. This panel today is our second event in that latter series, Technology Innovation and Protecting American National Security. We're pleased today to host this conversation. Um, and we've obviously seen a lot of discussion about the tech clash that's happening on Capitol Hill um, and other things, whether it's encryption policy or our policy with respect to China or the like. And so we've got a very distinguished panel here today to talk about these issues. So let me start right at the top and talk about who's here with us today. Aaron Hughes, immediately to my left, at least on my screen, is an NSI advisory board member and the former deputy assistant secretary for cyber policy. In that role, Aaron oversaw the development and implementation of cyber policy strategies, operations, and plans in support of DOD efforts in cyberspace. As the senior civilian responsible for DOD activities in the cyber domain, he regularly engaged with the White House and departments and agencies across the U.S. government to assist in the formulation and review of whole of nation policies. He currently serves as VP of Information Security and the deputy CISO of Capital One. Aaron, thanks for being here. Randy Milch is the co-chair of the NYU Center for Cybersecurity and the former general counsel of Verizon. At NYU, Randy serves as a distinguished fellow at the Reese Center as a professor of practice at NYU School of Law and as a faculty co-director of the Masters in Science in Cybersecurity Risk and Strategy. During his time at Verizon, Randy was responsible for national security matters beginning in 2006. He served as a senior cleared executive at Verizon and chaired the Verizon Executive Security Council, which oversaw information security across all of the Verizon entities. Dr. Sam Ravage is the chairman of the FDD's Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation, as well as its, its Transformative Cyber Innovation Lab and the principal investigator on FDD's Cyber-Enabled Economic Warfare Project. In addition to work at FDD, Samantha serves as a commissioner on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission as a member, and as a member of the Secretary of Energy's Advisory Board, and perhaps most importantly, is the vice chair of the President's Intelligence Advisory Board. And last but certainly not least, Ron Gula is the, is the moderator of our August panel today. Ron is an NSI advisory board member, also the president of Gula Tech Adventures. Prior to his work investing and advising cybersecurity companies, Ron served as the CEO and co-founder of Tenable Network Security, where he helped, helped and scale to more than 20,000 customers worldwide and raised $300 million in venture capital, achieving revenues in excess of over $100 million annually. Ron began his career also in the U.S. government as a network penetration tester for the National Security Agency. So thanks all for being here. What an amazing panel. Ron, over to you. Take it away. Thanks for those great introductions there, Jamil. Uh, so we have an August panel in, in August, right? And uh, with that lame joke, we're going to talk about tackling the tech lash. As we go on today, uh, feel free to type your questions uh, into the lower right uh, Q&A thing in your Zoom panel. And I'll either weave them in, and we're going to leave about 15, 10, 15 minutes towards the end. So, so right, one of the things we're going to talk about today is some overall themes. So why is there a tech lash? Why is it now? Who's feeling lashed against with the different types of technologies? So let's just kind of initially go around the horn and just, I want to hear everybody react to what do you think when we say tech lash, either the, the who or the why or the now? Samantha, let's go with, with you first. 
Um, well, thank you, and, and it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, leading up to this panel, when I was thinking about, you know, who and, and why and, and why now, um, first of all, yes, I do think that there is a tech lash, and it's beyond just Capitol Hill. Um, and, and I started to think about, like, what are the similarities between um, kind of the the color revolutions and what happened in the Middle East in Turkey and uh, and in Brazil in 2013, where a middle class that was actually part of the system kind of stood up and said, you know, we want changes in our country, right? And I went back and I looked at it, and again, these people were were in the system, but they felt there wasn't a, there was a lack of transparency that they weren't um, uh, getting what they were promised. And I kind of started to think, this is kind of what we're seeing and hearing now on, on a tech lash. It's people that use technology, but feel like the big tech players are almost political actors, right? They can tax, they can deny me benefits. Um, I don't have transparency into how they do that. Um, and so there's this kind of bubbling up uh, from the users of technology to want to change the, the, the kind of equation. Um, so I think that there's a lot to pull there. Um, and, and let me just, just say one other thing about this who, um, you, you know, when you look back at history in terms of what happened in Turkey and Brazil and before that in the Arab world, where it was led by the middle class, it, those revolutions didn't work. And um, one reason is because they didn't have a broader coalition. Um, so it'd be interesting to th see whether there is actually a push, this tech lash actually becomes something that constrains these big tech players. Thank you. Aaron, what are your thoughts on tech lash as a concept? Yeah, thank you, Ron. Thank you, Jamil. Uh, so certainly agree with Samantha. There's absolutely a, a tech lash going on. If you think of every company, every industry, you know, one of the constant refrains is sort of this digital transformation and digital disruption from, you know, industries that maybe hadn't traditionally uh, needed to interact um, you know, globally or through the internet in some way, shape or form, you know, now that is sort of commonplace and with the big tech players owning so much of that ecosystem, owning so much of the engagement point with consumers, the power of the, the big companies like Google, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, is, is tremendous. And the level of protection that they're putting in that customer data or the level of engagement they have with the U.S. government or companies trying to, uh, to, to, leverage their services as a means to interact is something that we'll certainly discuss through the course of conversation today. Excellent. Excellent. And Randy, what are your thoughts on TechLash? Uh, Ron, thank you again. And thank you, Jamil. Um, you know, I think that it's uh, the, the, the question of how technology has all of a sudden become the, 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 the canvas on which we, the political parties can now write their, their, you know, their dream, their dream campaigns, right? So for some on the left, it's technology is too big. Uh, why isn't the antitrust laws destroying these, these behemoths on the right? There is now all sorts of problems with Section 230 and transparency and censorship, all sorts of issues there. But it allows them, as, as Samantha, you know, recently pointed out, is this going to be, is this just by coincidence, strange bedfellows against the big tech companies, right, for very separate reasons. But it's politically expedient at this point for everyone to forget 
that the accretion of growth in the tech companies was 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 almost at every step approved by our antitrust agencies in both Republican and Democratic administrations. The Section 230, you know, is a is a Clinton era creation that has been that has be, become the you know the 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 most important you know it's the 26 words that created the internet to to mimic someone's book title. Um, so you know, as someone who uh, I, I distinctly recall many, many years of going to Capitol Hill and sell, telling senators that um, Google and Facebook and Twitter were not your friends, that they are, they are dangerous, they're inherently dangerous entities. And the answer I always got, which of course pissed me off, was, well, you're just from the, tel- you're, you're just from the telephone company. You're just, you're just pissed at them because you're from the telephone company. I actually finally got some apologies from some elected officials, privately, of course, that um, you know, after after a certain point, they sort of said, "Wow, you know, they they aren't they aren't the nicest people in the world, and nor should they be expected to be, right? They're companies; they have business imperatives and the like." So I think that we're at a political, interesting political moment, uh, and, and it'll be interesting to see how the, the grassroots issues that Samantha pointed out. Whether they whether they actually catch fire enough to propel, you know, the legislative changes that would be necessary in order to change things, right? They're, we're talking about a lot of change that would have to be different than what we're looking we've we've experienced in the past. Yeah, Ron, can I just add one 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 thing on that, which is you had asked also why now? I mean, I think the the why now, you know, part of this conversation is fairly obvious because. You know, we're all in our living rooms, you know, wearing flip flops, working on platforms, talking about, you know, all of these issues um, in my government uh, hat, uh, you know, working on these platforms from, you know, from my home. Is my home network really secure? Who knows? Um, so the, the, the why now is I think it's opened so many people's eyes. So uh, another phrase I'm trying to popularize is I think we've become technologically woke. Um, and, <laughs> but, you know, there, there's something, there's something to that, like we are really recognizing the primacy of this technology for how we make our money, how we get our food, how we get our medicine. Um, it, it is so pervasive and COVID just kind of really drove it, drove it home. Yeah, that's a great point. I agree that COVID not only made everybody feel more connected, but then they realized online that connectivity that they weren't appreciating, they very much appreciate it now. All right. So the first, first big question, we'll go to Aaron with this one. So, so big tech, uh, you know, we all think of Google, Twitter, Facebook, but I, I kind of put Verizon and, and, and uh, financial industry capital one, I kind of put that in there. So big tech, do they take citizen data? And I say citizen data, I talk about us citizen. Do they take it for granted? Aaron. Um, so they're certainly monetizing it. Uh, and I think with that, I would, it would lend me to believe they take it extremely seriously, their sort of right and need to protect it. Now that hasn't always, you know, played itself out in, in terms of, you know, what we see as consumers and leakages of data and otherwise, but sort of given the importance of consumer trust in their platforms, consumer trust in the, the data, um, in some instances, the confidentiality or the efficacy through whatever processes you're interacting with, uh, I want to believe they all take that that sort of extremely seriously. I mean, I'll, I'll you know speak 
um, you know, in Capital One, we absolutely take that uh, the premise of data protection seriously. Um, and 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 big tech again, given the importance to uh, you know their platforms, their services. Uh, and I think sort of the future, I mean, I, mean, I want to tie it back to maybe even a point that Samantha was just making a, sex, a section ago related to the inflection point that the quarantine and, and COVID has led us to. Like, we're not going back to a period in time where many more industries are in, interacting, you know, through mechanisms like we're on today and through uh, a, a much more digital means. I think the data uh, protections become even more important. Uh, long term, and you know, I do believe, which maybe will will, will be different than than some of my panelists. That sort of big tech takes that um, that privilege and that access uh, seriously. I've got a couple of follow up questions to this, but Randy and uh, Samantha, any comments on um, does big tech take private citizen data seriously? I I you know I think my only addition to what Aaron said, and I is that. If you look at big tech, it actually depends on where you look in the company about how seriously they take uh, they take citizen data. Um, it, you know, it's not unusual. The tech wannabes uh, are full of marketer marketeers who say, "God, if I only had all that all that data, I can come up with a product that you know will 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 be the next be the next unicorn, right?" And most of the time, that doesn't work out. Um, you know, and it's, so you really have to, depends on where you look, I think, uh, you know, you, for every Aaron that there is, who is dedicated his life to uh, protecting data, I'm afraid you have a lot of people who, um, don't really spend that much time thinking about the protection of data. And part of the problem is we don't have any rules. And I don't mean like a privacy law or cybersecurity. We don't have like general corporate rules that drive people to take care of this data, right? It's not an asset on their books. It's not a liability on their books. Uh, they don't have, they don't have, uh, you know, doc, you don't have data retention programs that, that target this sort of alt data the way that the, the financial world thinks of it, uh, which is not, you know, basic corporate data. So I think that there's a lot missing in the kind of thing that would drive the attention in a corporation more broadly. Yeah, so um, I, I really like the comments of, of Aaron and Randy. You know, one of the things that Aaron said, you know, which is, well, you know, they should be taking it seriously because they're monetizing it. Um, you know, you wonder, well, if it's pushed where they can't monetizing it, you know, then, I mean, are they going to take it even less seriously? Because I, I do think that, um, you know, as we all know, cybersecurity is not hard-baked. It, you know, it's it's an overlay at best. Um, and so a, a couple things from the, you mentioned the Cyber Solarium Commission, um, three of the recommendations. I mean, one is a recommendation on a national data security and, and privacy protection law, establishing and, and standardizing requirements for the collection, retention, and sharing of user data. Um, a second is a national breach notification law, um, which is in the House version of the NDAA. And a third, which hasn't gotten traction yet, but I, I'm hopeful at some point it will, which is to amend the Sarbanes-Oxley, to amend Sarbanes-Oxley to have cybersecurity be one of the things that, that uh, boards and C-suites have to certify, you know, on, on a standard, um, you know, in a, in a standard way. Um, but those would get the recognition that I think Randy was talking about. 
I think that one of the one of the points that I heard also that's important is it's inconsistent by industry, right? Highly regulated industries, you know, banking, maybe some interactions with the government sort of have different, uh, you know, laws and regulations as it relates to that data. Um, I think as we get sort of, you know, more bifurcated, spread out, federated in, in terms of industries and laws, I think that's where we need some common standards around uh, how the data is um, protected. Well, speaking of uh, double standards, so to speak, how do you guys react? And let's, let's start with Randy this time, but how do you react to perhaps somebody like a Google choosing to work with the government of China to enhance AI versus ignoring or not working with the Pentagon to do you know, AI for U.S. interest? Well, I don't react to it well. Um, I think that it's, um, uh, you know, it's, they're not required to be consistent, but I do think that, um, companies need at bottom to figure out where they're from, you know, companies say, Oh, we're a global company. We have, we have interests all over the world. We have people, we have uh, assets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's well and good. That's really well and good. Um, but, you know, um, sometimes it hits the fan. And when it hits the fan, you need to know where, where you're really a company of. And I think that uh, when we are in horse races with other companies for, with other countries for very, in, very, very strategic and important technology, that it is, um, it is behoo- it behooves a company at the very senior levels to say, hey, you know, we wouldn't exist. We wouldn't have exist without the United States. We wouldn't exist without the freedoms that we have. And uh, to sort of say, you know, I'm not going to do it because my employees don't like it, because I don't trust the government, any number of things. And by the way, those are all important. And not trusting the government is something that I think that any senior person in a company has to be skeptical about their interactions with the government, um, particularly on the on the secure side of the house. But I think that uh, you need to know where you're from. Uh, and I think a lot of, I think there are too many Silicon Valley companies, tech companies that have forgotten where they're from. Samantha, any comments on the double standard with China? Uh, yeah, um, I, you know, I think that that the company and the employees that that pushed for um, uh, canceling the contract with with the Pentagon um, are at best intellectually lazy, right? They're they're akin to finding their car keys in the light of the street lamp. Um, you know, they they know because of our open press, because of our transparency, you know, about the military, about the U.S. military, about our foreign policy, and, and they like it or they don't like it. In this case, they don't like it. But where are the questionings of the brutal detention of the Uyghurs, of the plight of the Tibetans, um, about the fact that, that Huawei has sold um, surveillance capabilities to 49 countries to repress and oppress their people? Um, you know, where where is any of that? That kind of the next step of understanding what the world looks like and who are adversaries. So the kindest thing I can say about those decisions and what those employees, you know, sign their name to is that they are intellectually lazy. Um, I could go much further than that. We need a tech lash name name for that. Um, 
So Aaron, uh, next, next question to you. So is Twitter and Facebook, are they doing enough to prevent the spread of disinformation? And even in some cases like, you know, uh, uh, Joe Biden's uh, Twitter account getting, getting owned, you know, the direct spoofing of information potentially, are they doing enough? Um, well, let me, let me just make a comment on the previous point on, on Google real quick. I'll just, you know, state from someone that was, you know, formerly in the department. I just, I just don't get it. Like we need, the department needs access to the best and brightest. Google asserts that it, that it has those type of engineers. So I just, that one just always baffles me. Um, in terms of, of Facebook and Twitter, I know that they're certainly trying. Um, but as we can see from sort of continued active disinformation, they're not succeeding at it. Um, I appreciate the transparency that Facebook has had in, in um, trying to, to mute those disinformation campaigns. I appreciate the, uh, what Twitter has tried to do for, um, uh, where, where they have sort of either removed or stated um, that tweets were not factually correct. Um, but, but Twitter, in this day and age of the platform that it provides for so many global leaders, including sort of our, our own president, like that should be viewed in my mind as sort of a national security asset, like the, the efficacy of a platform that can put out policy that can move markets. We need much more protection and control around the information that is prevalent on that, that platform. And so uh, the answer in my mind is no, they're not doing enough. Certainly they're trying uh, and to the degree that, that they need additional partnerships with, um, uh, other entities to sort of help move that along, I'd be, I'd be, you know, extremely supportive of that because we are in a day and age where we need a platform of, of truth. And that just does not exist on either of those as currently constituted. Yeah. I'm going to get everybody's comments on this, but Randy, w would you mind just taking a moment as, as I think the only lawyer on the panel, is that, that's true, right? Nobody, nobody's else a secret lawyer. Okay, great. Um, could you just talk about for, for a brief minute or two, why uh, Twitter, Facebook aren't considered publishers, why they can do what they can do, why they get caught up in this whole censorship debate. Like what, what governs that? So uh, 19, you know, as part of the Communi Communications Decency Act, which was part of the Telecom Act of 96, the famous Section 230 was passed. It had two very basic parts to it. Uh, one part basically said that uh, providers of uh, the kind of service that uh, interaction computer service, the kind of service that that Twitter and Facebook are, uh, those services um, can't be held liable as a publisher for things that third parties put on their on their platform. So that was a sh very important shield for them. Uh, so that's the first part, right? That they they you can't accuse them of of the basic idea was defamatory speech, but the courts have very, very broadly interpreted uh, that protection. Uh, so it's protected them from cyber stalking claims and a whole measure of, of, of various types of claims uh, can't be brought against them. Uh, the second part of it was that they also got immunity for uh, 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 curating the content, right? So not only did they get immunity for, they couldn't be sued for what third parties put on, but if they took steps to curate the content, they also couldn't be sued. And so it was two parts, right? One, and the expectation, the clause was called the Good Samaritan Clause. So the expectation was that these, these um, uh, platforms that had so much third-party content on them would 
uh, because of these two protections, uh, spend their time curating the content so that uh, bad things didn't show up, right? They couldn't be sued for them, but bad things didn't show up because they couldn't be sued for taking them off. Um, now, the truth of the matter is that, that, that since from 96 on, you can sort of count it, there were basically two decades of relying entirely on the first part of that protection, i.e. you can't sue me for anything that comes on my platform, and very little, very, very little time spent on the second part, right, which is I'm going to curate things off. Other than child pornography, which was a very obvious and important uh, uh, um, uh, separate uh, mandate that they had under federal law, uh, there was very little work on on that part. So the in some ways, the huge size of these platforms got ahead of their capabilities to deal with the things that appeared on them. And now we're in a very big catch-up period. And unfortunately, we're in a catch-up period where the platforms are damned if they do and damned if they don't, right? They're damned if they, if they, if, you know, if they actually um, rely on their immunities. People say, oh, you don't care. On the other hand, if they try to curate things and take things off as human beings are going to be doing it because machine learning is not yet up to the task of really doing it well. Um, uh, you know, human beings are going to make these decisions. Human beings are biased. There's going to be bias probably in how they take things off and they're damned on that front. So that's, that's sort of the legal framework and that's sort of a little bit of the factual uh, uh, aspect to it, at least up to this point. Excellent. Excellent. So, um, Samantha, could you comment also on, you know, are they doing enough to prevent disinformation, but then segue towards the balance for censorship? Yeah, um, you know, again, in some ways, <laughs> I think that um, the, the tech companies aren't um, uh, uh, doing enough. On the other hand, um, they're private entities going against nation state actors, right? And, and so I think we also have to be kind of be aware of that. The Cyber Solarian Commission, you know, we had our recommendations fell into three buckets. Um, uh, one is, is shape behavior, meaning working with our international partners. Um, you know, the second was increasing resilience. And the third is being able to impose costs, and, you know, the, so when you look at things, you know, like, like the big platforms being used for disinformation, um, well, the first two parts, the shaping behaviors and, and the resiliency, certainly there are things that they could do more and there are ways the U.S. government can help them. But, you know, they're constrained from imposing costs. The U.S. government does not want letters of mark and reprisal. Um, you know, over to you, attorney. Um, uh, you know, so, so the tech companies are like, hey, you know, at the end of the day, isn't it the U.S. government's um, responsibility to impose costs on a nation state adversary that is targeting our platforms and putting disinformation on it. Um, you know, so, so I think, you know, again, that's, that's where this all gets, gets a little bit, gets a little bit sticky. Um, uh, you know, but, uh, in terms of, um, the second part of your question, you know, which is, you know, what protections can be afforded the, the population? Right. Um, and oftentimes in some of these discussions, the populace is kind of left out of it. And again, that kind of goes back to my original 
um, comments. Uh, they're a constituency, and the Cyber Solarium Commission, we spent a lot of time, you know, focused on what kind, uh, how can we strengthen their voice, their, their constituency, whether it is pass an internet of things, security law, or establish and fund a national cybersecurity certification and labeling authority, or even establish liability for final goods assemblers, right? It, um, and so those things were, were debated because we just felt that the consumer, the individual, the citizen was being left out of this conversation. Excellent, excellent. So we're going to shift towards uh, personal technology for the, for the second half of this. We've got some great questions queued up. I, I, I will get to them. Uh, so if you're listening and you've got a question that we haven't touched yet, go free to, to type it. So Aaron, um, let's talk about personal technology. Does the average citizen really care about or know the difference between real privacy, end-to-end encryption, or legal law enforcement access to the data? Does the average citizen care about it or know that it exists? I mean, I I think the average citizen probably knows that it exists. I don't think that the average citizen, you know, necessarily – cares about the application of those sorts of uh, uh, capabilities or, or services. The average citizen wants to interact with the supercomputer that's in his or her pocket in the form of a, a phone and wants their apps to work. Um, and they want some semblance of their information to be held private to themselves and whoever they choose to, to share it with. Um, I think, uh, you know, private citizens, if there are instances where, their data is exposed or they're, uh, you know, be- become part of a, a legal matter, then, then certainly they care a little bit more at that point in time. But I, I do not believe that the average citizen, you know, would enter into, I think, the debate that we're about to get into right now. That's right. Randy, what are your thoughts on legal law enforcement access to encrypted data, private data, the role of all that keeping, keeping us safe? Well, you know, I think that it, yeah, I think that it's important to, think of it in a few different buckets, unfortunately. Um, uh, If you're talking about the ability of law enforcement to get into something encrypted on a phone or on a a PC that's sitting there in storage, you know, I I would think there's one set of issues that come up. If you're talking about the ability of law enforcement to intercept live traffic um, that might be end-to-end encrypted, I think there's a different set of, of concerns. You know, the the going dark debate, which is what you're really raising here, has been has been a mainstay of uh, of, of government technology interaction for oh ever since the, a law called Kalea passed uh, back in the '90s. So you know it and earlier, it, you know the whole notion of moving to digital switching in the phone business was accompanied by a law that basically required the phone companies to develop their technology in a way so that the ability of, of law enforcement to continue to intercept, uh, intercept uh, phone calls was un, unimpeded, right? Um, that doesn't apply to the tech companies. It doesn't apply to the big internet companies. So the big technology platform companies doesn't apply to Apple. Um, so, you know, you've got this sort of long, long-standing debate. Uh, every director of the FBI for the last 30 years has stood up and said, we're going dark. We're going dark. It's going to be a problem. Um, and there's been a, uh, there's been a chorus on the other side saying, no, no, it's not a problem. You get what you need when you really need it. 
uh, and what the tr where the truth lies there, I, I, you know, I, I, re I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know because I stopped doing that stuff five years ago, so I don't know what the truth is now. Um, I do think that it's it's the the thing that's a little bit different is that this used to be centered entirely on sort of the uh, infrastructure, you know, you know, the internet companies, the infrastructure companies, and the like. But now, given as you said, Ron, and the ubiquity of uh, important data that resides digitally so far across the, 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 te the, the, the spectrum of U.S. companies, this is something that every company's got to think about. Every company's going to have to think about what's their approach toward getting a subpoena for data. How are they storing that data? How is it being transported? All that kind of stuff. If you're, if you're not thinking about it, it could be a travel agency. It could be, it's definitely the big, the finance companies, right? That's been true for years, but it's travel agencies, uh, booksellers, uh, you know, you name it. And if they haven't thought about what they're going to do with their data, they should, because it's the, the, the huge growth of data everywhere, personal data everywhere, also means there's a lots of different places for law enforcement and national security agencies to look for data. So many more people are in this mix, many more types of companies are in this mix than it used to be, where it was a pretty specialized cadre of companies and lawyers and national security people all knew each other, all were trying to work it out one way or the other consistent with their, with their equities. It's a much bigger, much bigger pie now. And Samantha, when I got my first copy of the Solarium, I read through it avidly looking for any recommendation on, on this issue. So what, what's your feelings on government access to data at rest and encryption? And then maybe can you give us any insight to some of the debate on the Solarium? Because yeah, it, I mean, it was, it was an honest, um, involved, in-depth debate, probably the, the, I don't want to say contentious because, you know, for, for those who are, are listening, you, you understand about the Cyber Solarium Commission, um, four sitting members of Congress, six outsiders of whom I was one, four sitting members of the executive branch. Um, we had 30 meetings, each meeting two hours, um, three out of four at least of the members of Congress were at every single meeting. It really was an astounding um, uh, 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 body to be participating in. Couldn't tell um, who was on what side of the aisle, completely nonpartisan. This issue, though, was contentious, and it didn't break down on party lines, all right? But it, it was contentious because as you walk through the issue, right, and you start with, well, look, just think about how much data of yours personally. So you're an individual is flowing across these devices. And now let's put on top what, you know, the future of uh, the internet of things and, you know, your, your health data and, and you, you know, how you run your house and your finances, all this stuff. Right. And wow, we'd be so much more secure end-to-end uh, -end encryption. Right. That that. Wow. Our, our data can be so much more secure. And as an individual, you're saying, yeah, that that sounds good. And then you're told. And if everybody had their, their data secure, we'd be much more secure as an economy, as a population, national security. That sounds fantastic. And then someone says, yes. And who else would be secure? A lawless, you know, there'd be growing within our midst, basically ungoverned territory. 
right? Ungoverned legal territory, you know, child pornographers, human traffickers, you know, money launderers, because, hey, guess what? They have the protections too of end-to-end encryption. And then as an individual, you're like, huh, what am I willing to give up as my individual security for a societal, perhaps, security of mandatory lawful access, right? No one, you know, uh, get a subpoena and, you know, show cause and, and go for it. Um, we as a commission put down both sides. We did not come up with a recommendation, frankly, it is something we punted on because uh, hopefully technology will figure out a way to get us out of this. But as you walk on one side, then the other side of the debate, and then back to that first side, um, you, you, you feel torn within yourself as an individual that wants to protect my own data. Um, and what do we need to do to govern our society? Because let me just add one other thing. Nothing else in our society do you have an absolute right um, you know, you can't have a safe in your house that you say, this is off limits. Like, I don't care what you do in the courts. You'll never get a subpoena to come into my house and look in that safe. I, I mean, I'll defer to Randy, but I don't think there is any guarantee that, you know, that you could have that if, if the law enforcement can show cause and get a warrant to go look in that safe. So again, one side, other side, and then back to the first one. Excellent. So we've been talking a lot. We've been beating up on social media companies and the, the, the government and whatnot, but let's just talk about tech in, in, in general. Um, I want to go around the horn and, and, and man, Randy, we'll start with you. Um, you know, the constant barrage of upgrades. If you don't upgrade, you're a Luddite because you're on an iPhone 6, right? The computers that need to be patched and rebooted constantly, right? The, the Tesla, I got to bring it in to get it an update, right? It's a, it never, never ends. And we have a public who's constantly frustrated why things aren't working and, and the constant obsolescence. So Randy, where are we going to be? What, what's going on here? <laughs> well, I don't think that we're going to be uh, free of patch Tuesday or patch Thursday. I never remember which day it is, which, which day it is. But It's patch every day. Patch every day. I don't think we're going to be free of that for quite some time. You know, there's no... There's a lot of economic reasons why you want to get your software out as quickly as possible. First mover advantages, network effects, all those lock-in, customer lock-in. I mean, there's all sorts of economic reasons, economic incentives. And there's no, there's no real uh, incentive on the other side to make sure your, your software is as close to perfect as it can be, right? There's no liability. Everything You sign away all your liability every time you download it. Uh, so... You know, I think that I think that it's 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 not going to change anytime soon, and I don't think that we have a system that really um, permits people to know that they've got some lemon um, before they've got it. Right? There's no rating system. There's no. There's you know, people don't want to wait for the thing. Sometimes the the download is pushed to you. If you have an iPhone, you get the pushes. Um, and you can let it sit there for a while, but it nags you. It says, oh, there's an update. What? And they said, every update says important security update, right? So kind of a fool doesn't download an important security update, right? I mean, I think that that's, 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 that's pretty, it's pretty significant. Uh, you know, I will say that it's complicated. I mean, these are very complex systems. As Aaron said, this is just a supercomputer in your pocket. So it's not like it's like, you know, it's not like it's simple. It's not simple. And anyone who runs like Aaron does worries about a big system knows that you can't patch it automatically, right? You never know what your patch is going to break in a complicated system. So you have to like spend time 
looking at the patch, making sure it doesn't break something downstream, making sure all your systems work together after you've implemented the patch. So it's not, it's not uncomplicated. I think people, I, I basically tell people, get over it. Why do you expect it to work better than, why do you expect it to work so well? It's complicated. Aaron, Aaron yeah, no, I, yeah, no, this, this, is, this is one, I think, uh, you put your consumer hat on for a second and you say, okay, is this better than the alternative of having a bricked, you know, piece of equipment because I can't patch the software and then it is, you know, vulnerable in perpetuity. I think certainly as companies and entities, we can work on the usability associated with pushing the patches and making it more sort of seamless and making it so my grandmother can understand what's happening when she gets those alerts. Um, but I, I don't think we would ever want to go back to uh, a paradigm where um, there's not the ability to actively push uh, uh, corrections to software. I, mean, I think that would increase your, your, your software costs or increase your hardware costs for consumers. Um, certainly we need to work on usability, but in uh, the communication around why you need or want to install the, uh, the software upgrade but. I think we're sort of as an industry, as it's, I'm using industry in the terms of the tech industry, I think we're very much on the right track to, to making that more seamless. Excellent. Samantha, any comments on the constant uh, upgrades? Yeah. Um, so um, the, the Cyber Slayer Commission did, did recommend that Congress fund um, three critical technology security centers. Um, uh, one for the testing of security of hardware, one for the testing of security of software, and one for the testing of industrial control systems. Um, and, and um, you know, we'll see whether, whether this goes ahead. But um, I, I, I think not just relying on the companies to do it themselves, um, uh, but uh, to, to have the government also help in the, the testing so that, you know, uh, Aaron's grandmother, my 91-year-old mother, um, can can look at uh, you know uh, uh, what the government says. Hey, this is necessary. This isn't because I was thinking the other day. You're right. My mom has an iPhone, and I was thinking her iPhone is probably more powerful than when I started at Rand in 1992. They had a Cray. Right. And, you know, you wouldn't have my mom going in and uh, upgrading the cray. Um, and yet, you know, she's supposed to, to know about, you know, downloading what patches and how on, on her iPhone. It's uh, I mean, that's just nonsensical. So along, along these lines, you know, the government's trying to get more involved with this kind of awareness and, and public guidance. Like even even the Solarium had a couple of recommendations that holding people liable, holding, holding certain technologies uh, ratings, which I thought was good. Um, but we're increasingly seeing the National Security Agency getting involved. Uh, they're out and out talking about what vulnerabilities are being exploited. And most recently, they kind of came out just days after President Trump kind of banned TikTok and said, be careful when you're walking around with your Bluetooth and your Wi-Fi and, and, and certain types of apps. So it's getting kind of scary. Uh, Randy, any thoughts on, on, on this, this trend here? Well, listen, you know, if you look across the landscape of the government and how the government tries to impart information to folks, um, you know, I guess we thought that things were going to be concentrated a little bit in the Department of Homeland Security um, at CISA. Um, I guess we thought that the FTC, you know, which is really does act as the principal cybersecurity commercial, you know, consumer cybersecurity regulator in the country. Uh, would be doing would be doing more, but you know we don't have an approach that's really we don't we don't have a single bully pulpit. 
my own view is that, um, you know, there's a little bit of, there, there, there unfortunately is at certain times with the government, with, with the current government, a little bit of confusion about whether we're being told that a national security problem is really a national security problem or maybe have more political aspects to it. Um, uh, and I'm not saying this, it's only this administration, but it certainly seems to be an issue with this administration. So you can understand that people are a little hesitant to say, well, is this, is this truth or is, this, is, there, is there politics behind it? That being said, folks at the NSA are pretty smart. And by the way, advice about the fact that you're leaving open, you're leaving open communications entryways into your, into your devices by leaving your Bluetooth on and, and the like, I mean, that's pretty accurate. There's no reason to, there's no reason to doubt that that's, that's the case. So I guess I'm in currently in favor is uh, if we're not going to consolidate into a single bully pulpit, which I think would be a good idea about getting information out to folks uh, from the government about cybersecurity sort of on the GCHQ model in, in Britain, then I guess I'm in favor of as many pulpits as we've got to tell people information because uh, the general level of cybersecurity awareness, the general level of cybersecurity hygiene in the country is very low. We are barely in the hand-washing phase uh, of hygiene, cyber hygiene. So um, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in favor of as much information as possible. Excellent. Samantha or Aaron, any comments? Aaron? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's not lost on any of us as panelists here or, or likely the, the community listening that NSA has an offensive and a defensive mission. Um, they're also also across U.S. government, you know, widely respected for their technical acumen. Um, now, I think there's probably some uh, some pockets of the the you know broader country that are cynical around NSA's intentions. But I think sort of as a as a as a citizen, I want sort of one of our more uh, technically respected entities, you know, providing technical advice on how to protect yourself. Um, similar to Randy, you know, should that be centralized in some way, shape, or form in DHS or other organizations? I think we want as many parts of the USG that are involved with protecting citizen data, company data, critical infrastructure to sort of espouse the principles of how to protect yourself and your company. So I'm absolutely supportive of NSA pushing that message out there, obviously acknowledging that they have a, a prime defensive mention, defensive mission for uh, government systems. Excellent. Any comments on the NSA and TikTok and whatnot, Samantha? Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, on TikTok, I think that um, it would also be good and, and probably NSA isn't the right one to do this piece of kind of the uh, context, right? I mean, you know, NSA should be looked to for their technological acumen and, and when they put out warnings and they provide the technological reasons um, for, their re for, you know, these warnings, um, people should heed them. Um, but they're the broader context of something like, you know, TikTok, um, you know, why we, we shouldn't be uh, comfortable with the fact that China says, no, don't worry, all data from TikTok, you know, in the U.S. remains in the U.S., until it doesn't the next day, and then it can go back to China. And, and of course, the Chinese Communist Party um, can get any of that data that it wants. Uh, the, you know, at the point when there was an American head of TikTok US, until there isn't. Um, those broader context of how and why China may want to use this data, get more people dependent on it, because the other thing 
in terms of context for TikTok. Let's not forget like 10 years or whatever it is ago, Facebook was simply a platform to hook up with your former high school boyfriend or girlfriend. That was it, right? And, and over the last decade, the amount of data that Americans have allowed Facebook to have, the, 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 you know, the ways that Facebook is being used, it, it, people have become dependent on it for understanding their politics, understanding, you know, what's going on in the broader society. Um, you know, you wouldn't want to see TikTok, which now people are like, it's a 15 second video, become a platform of choice uh, still held by, by China, but being able to kind of vacuum up more and more of, of American data. And I think that was the broader context around it. Um, which again isn't for NSA to really provide. It, it might be for other American agencies. Excellent, excellent. Well, we've got some great uh, questions from uh, from the audience. I'm sure you guys are going to give some great answers. So um, let's try to do this as quickly as possible. About 15 of these uh, queued up. Uh, so the first question is, you know, do the AI algorithm, do the machine learning uh, algorithms that are created by flawed humans? you know, doing things that we're not going to be able to undo. What are your general thoughts on, on these things? And we're using AI to decide if we make loans and drive cars, to fly drones. Is there a risk in, in not trusting these algorithms? You know, of course there's a, I mean, there, there's certainly a risk in bias in all these algorithms, right? I mean, it's well established. Uh, you have to ask two questions. One is, uh, what are the efficiencies gained by using AI to do some things and not? And secondly, remember, uh, there's bias in humans. So if AI wasn't doing this, you'd have a different set of humans than the developers who get bias, you know, who, who allow unconscious bias into the AI, uh, into the algorithms. You'd have a different set of humans making the decisions themselves, right? So our, some of our first AI uh, in, implementations were in things like parole questions and, and, and the like bail questions, parole questions, you know, ideas about future dangerousness and the like. And there were certainly, certainly uh, biases that were exploited in these. Um, uh, the question then became, okay, but the idea was to replace the judge who was biased. So you always have to ask in these questions better than what, right? It's one of the most critical questions about new technology is better than what? What's it replacing? Is it by the way, that doesn't mean you should let people off the hook. I mean, I think that the AI is the, and machine learning is in its infancy and in, in figuring out ways to root out bias, whether there's, there's a whole thing about uh, explainable AI, you know, in, imposing some sort of almost a, uh, a, a requirement that, that the algorithms be explainable. Uh, this at the same time when people who develop them basically say they're black boxes by nature and they're not going to be explainable. So there's a lot of, of back and forth on this. I, I think it's too early to call AI um, hopelessly, uh, hopelessly biased and unable. The, the, this, this, horse is, this, card, this horse is well out of the barn. Uh, and so, you know, we're going to have to do a lot of catch up and maybe the answer is there are just certain uses we don't allow AI for because we're not, instead of trying to make it better or trying to explain it or trying to overregulate it, maybe we just decide there's some uses that we're not going to use AI for and we're going to use AI for other uses, right? There's, we're not a, we don't have to be captive to AI yet. I mean, obviously, one day we're all going to be captive to AI uh, because it's going to be hovering above us in a big machine. But um, until then, we can decide not to use it in certain places. Aaron, uh, next question for you. 
is, um, is there such a thing as law lash? So we we're talking about tech lash, but are there laws coming out of the Brussels and Washington, D.C., GDPR, the right to be forgotten, uh, so many things. Is this creating a barrier for innovation? Um, well, I might have to throw a lifeline to Randy on the, the legal side. I don't, not that I have, have seen. I mean, certainly uh, we're having to ensure that our technologies adhere to those, those laws and, and regulations, but it has not sort of stopped, you know, companies from moving forward and continuing to engage with consumers. I, I, I don't think it is now we've had to apply more resources, more capacity, higher costs. Um, so maybe entrance into the market uh, uh, that that has stifled some innovation, but probably you know not for bigger corporations. Cool. And I think that Aaron just accurately explained why it's a barrier to entry to why why regulation is traditionally seen as a barrier entry to small companies. Uh, and there's little you know between between the 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 various uh, regulatory regimes, the overlapping regulatory regimes that we have now on cyber and privacy. Uh, I think that there is a risk that um, these regimes that, you know, My Michael Nelson's question from Carnegie is a good question. I think that there is a, is a real danger that, um, uh, you know, that, 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 that it's going to, there's going to be a, there is already a regulatory overlay. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a burden on companies. You know, whenever you have a big company that says, please come regulate me uh, the way that Facebook did um, you got to think um, it's because Facebook's got more money than God and can and afford to be regulated. Excellent. Samantha, next, next question's for you. Um, I think I know who this is from, but um, it's as a Silicon Valley VC who cares about national security, I am often dismayed by the low level of technology knowledge among legislators. The Solarium Commission was a breath of fresh air. Who are the think tanks that are respected by Congress and who are able to bridge the technology gap for policymakers? And if you could give a shout out to some of the congressmen and senators who are on the commission, please. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that would be my pleasure. Um, uh, the four members of Congress, um, uh, Angus King um, was one of the co-chairs independent from Maine, um, Ben Sass, Senator from Nebraska, the other co-chair from the House, um, Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, and, and the wonderful Jim Langevin, um, a congressman from Rhode Island. Um, you know, these, these members of Congress, again, three out of four mostly came to every single meeting um, and, and work the hard issues. Um, they, they asked the right questions. Um, they were head down in learning uh, things that they didn't know about. And one of the, the kind of most disruptive um, recommendations from the commission, I, I don't think it's time is right right now, is um, the formation of a select committee on the Hill for cyber. Um, similar to what SISI and HIPSI are for intelligence, so that you could have a dedicated staff that are experts, that you could have members that are willing to dedicate the time to become, uh, build up a body of expertise. Um, Representative Jim Langevin was, was just a trooper on trying to push this ahead. Uh, in, 
it's it's tough haul at this point because it runs into so many jurisdictions. Again, it's not it's not partisan. That's not the reason why it probably won't succeed at this point in time. It's because try asking members of Congress to give up some jurisdiction. Um, you know that gets a little that gets a little tough. Um, different parts on the, the think tank side. Um, different parts of the equation. Uh, you know, uh, the one, Suzanne Spaulding, um, who is on the commission at, at CSIS is doing phenomenal work on election security. Um, my own think tank on the Center for Cyber and Technology Innovation, we look at um, technological pilot projects to try to understand why doesn't good technology transition um, to help protect the defense industrial base, thinking that we have to kind of pre-chew food um, to say, you, this is blockchain, it does not mean cryptocurrency, this is what it looks like, don't be afraid, it isn't black magic, it can just make, you know, your, your ledgers more secure, um, things like that. So, so there, are, there are a number um, of, of great work being, being done, but uh, again, www.solarium.gov, at least read the co-chair's report, uh, letter, two pages at the beginning. And of course, the National Security Institute helped out a little bit with that. Yes, of course. Oh, my God. I should be mortified. All right. So last question. And, and then we're going to go for about the top of the hour here. And Samantha's going to go last, okay, on this one, because you've been doing this for a while. So, um, Aaron, the election's over. You get a phone call. says, I need two minutes of advice for the next administration on cyber for the state. What would you recommend? <laughs> I'll put my old hat on and say, you know, get out of DOD's way, right? Let's let's not sort of over legislate or over uh, over uh, sort of EO the ability for the department to do what we've been trying to mature for so long. Now, I think there's certainly been been progress on that in the four years that I've been uh, outside of the Pentagon, but I will certainly uh, uh, champion DOD efforts to make sure that we can appropriately defend forward and impose costs as appropriate and collaboration with all the other dimensions that we have at our disposal. Randy, any, any recommendations for the next administration? Uh, I would double down on critical infrastructure to the uh, detriment of private consumer cybersecurity. Um, I think is, is in the near term, I'm much more concerned about, about uh, private infrastructure. I think until we have a population that actually values its privacy, which I don't think we have now, um, I think it's more, I think we're frittering away resources, beating up on that more. Um, and I would, I would be, I'm much more concerned about, about the, the 16 or 17 critical infrastructure categories than I am about, uh, individual cyber. And, and Samantha, I think you guys recommended, was it 87 unique things? Right. But. Um, so look in the top report. Three, top three. Oh, well, continuity of the economy, um, because no matter how resilient we need to become, um, uh, we obviously need to defend forward. We need to be able to impose costs, but there is a high likelihood we will suffer a significant cyber attack. And the greatest deterrent is that the adversary knows that we will not be down for the count, that we can get up the next day and strike back, meaning that our economy um, in the interconnected way that it is, that we know how to flow resources and capabilities to telecom, not everyone is going to be prioritized. What does telecommunications need to get up and running? What do the banks need to get up and running first and foremost, um, as well as, as prioritizing parts of the critical infrastructure? So um, folks can go in the report and, and look at that recommendation. 
Excellent. Well, I'd like to thank everybody uh, for this. And I want to turn it back over to uh, Jamil Jaffer. Jamil, I think we had a really good showing here. Awesome. Ron, what a great conversation. Aaron, Samantha, Randy, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks to all the uh, attendees for joining. Have a great afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.